Welcome, everyone. So let's begin tonight by setting our motivation. In his teachings, the Buddha laid out three main spiritual goals for us as Buddhist practitioners. And since most of us won't attain full awakening in this life, we need a series of fortunate rebirths so that we can continue progressing along the path. And so to attain those rebirths, we contemplate the drawbacks of taking an unfortunate rebirth in lower realms and also the opportunities that we have for spiritual progress with the fortunate rebirth we have. And so both of these aspects motivate us to keep good ethical conduct and to engage in the six perfections and to dedicate our merit for a precious human rebirth. And since some of us will aspire for personal liberation, then we can reflect on the faults of cyclic existence and the unsatisfactory nature of being under the control of karma and afflictions. And these motivate us to develop the three higher trainings to overcome karma and the afflictions. And then for those interested in the universal vehicle, attaining full awakening is our ultimate purpose. So we contemplate the kindness of all sentient beings again and again. And we think about their dissatisfaction and suffering, which inspires us to cultivate our bodhicitta with the different methods and to engage in all six perfections that lead to that state. At the beginning, the biggest obstacle to attaining our spiritual goals is our constant preoccupation with the eight worldly concerns. These uh, cause us to engage in non-virtue and distract us from creating virtue. And so the most effective way to overpower the eight worldly concerns is to reflect on impermanence and death. So let's engage tonight in this review of chapter nine of the foundation of Buddhist thought or Buddhist practice called Looking Beyond This Life with a genuine wish to develop deep conviction in impermanence and death deep conviction that will stabilize our actions of body, speech, and mind and our most heartfelt spiritual aspirations. And of course, we aspire to do this so that we can be of greater and greater benefit to all sentient beings. So that motivation comes straight out of chapter 9, um, which is called Looking Beyond This Life. Uh, one of the reasons I love doing reviews is because it's such a great excuse to go back and really read each word and try to understand it. So I feel like I'm the greatest benefit benefactor of preparing for a teaching. Um, 
So we do get caught up in chasing after the happiness of this life, chasing, chasing samsaric pleasures and material goods, grasping after personal praise and fame, and we're deeply habituated to do that. But when we've cultivated these heartfelt aspirations and we've made firm resolves uh, to bring these three goals about in our lives, then there's, there's no stopping us, really. And the proof of that is just look at Venerable Children. She's a person who has been persistently creating causes and conditions for the last 40 plus years of her ordained life, um, making strong vows and aspirations and accepting any setbacks as negative karma ripening. And um, I think the fact that six, six volumes, soon to be seven volumes of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion series has rolled out so quickly is a testament to her heartfelt aspirations uh, and her merit, of course, and her aspiration to serve her teachers and also to serve all sentient beings and also her resolve to work 110% or maybe 150%, 200% for full awakening to be a benefit to other sentient beings. So we're lucky that we have a role model of someone who has taken the Buddhist teachings to heart and shows us how to do the same thing. So last Friday, Venerable Tarpa very skillfully uh, covered the eight freedoms and the 10 fortunes of precious human rebirth. And we meditate on these freedoms and fortunes to develop a desire to take full advantage of the conditions the conducive conditions that we have right now, the opportunities. And so what stops us from taking full advantage of this opportunity that we have is this thought that's in the back of our mind. It's probably an unconscious thought, but nevertheless, it's there. It's the thought, I will not die. Um, so the Buddha called this grasping at impermanence. Oh, permanence, sorry. <laughs> grasping at permanence. It's a wrong consciousness. It's a wrong view, actually. And as long as we unconsciously hold the thought, I will not die today, we will continue to think we have all the time in the world to uh, engage in the Dharma and to take advantage of our conducive conditions. It's an excuse to procrastinate when we think that way. But death is such a teacher for all of us. It's one that we often choose to neglect or deny or push away. Preparing for our own death as well as the death of our loved ones um, is such an important part of our spiritual practice, part of our spiritual work, because it lifts our mind out of the ordinary mundane daily activities that take up, that steal most of our uh, precious time every day. And it invites us to question the meaning of our life and look beyond you know, just what is it that lies beyond this life? Really gets us to question that. So I'll bet many of you have had this experience when someone close to you dies. Uh, for a while, we may be more aware of just how precious life is. Have you had that experience? Um, we're aware of how fleeting and fragile this life is and how it can end at any moment. And feelings of grief and loss, um, Keep, that, keep our hearts soft and tender to that reality. But with time, that tenderness closes back up, doesn't it? We become callous again. Um, that's why we meditate on the nine-point death meditation, to keep that awareness fresh in our minds so that it really motivates us to practice 
sincerely now while we can. The pandemic has probably increased our collective awareness of the fragility of life, and especially as the death toll in the U.S. and around the world keeps climbing. Um, I checked just, just today, 387, 255 deaths in the U.S. as of noon, noon today. 387,255. And over 2 million around the world. And I suspect that's an underestimation. So we, have, we can see that as an opportunity to keep our hearts soft and tender to this reality of life that as soon as there's birth, death is not, not far away. Or perhaps awareness of the impending climate cri crisis and the prospects of devastating sea level rises or uh, vast desertification of large areas of the planet have got your attention and heightened your awareness of the fragility of our place on the planet and our ability to survive here. Um, uh, one Tibetan teacher said, perhaps the deepest reason we're afraid of death is because we don't know who we are. We strongly believe in a personal, personal unique, separate identity but if we dare to examine it, we find that this identity depends entirely on an endless collection of things to prop it up, like our name, our biography, our partners, our family, our home, our careers, our friends, our credit cards, etc. Right? So that's an interesting thing to ponder. But keep in mind that we're studying about death and impermanence not to scare ourselves. There are plenty of things that already do that but to motivate ourselves to make appropriate preparations for the eventuality of our death. It's, it's a natural thing. It's part of life. If we don't prepare now, then at death we will be overcome with worry about separating from the people and the things that we are attached to. And instead, studying and meditating on death helps us to cultivate a healthy fear, a healthy caution towards death so that we get serious about observing the law of cause and effect. We get serious about accumulating virtue and avoiding or you know, disregarding non-virtue. So rather than fear, we want to cultivate a healthy concern, uh, an informed concern about our situation. So fear is unnecessary because there are specific things that we can do to bring about a relaxed, peaceful, and gentle death. There are things that we can do. Um, there are things that we can do to bring about a fortunate rebirth. So we can relax and, and get busy. <laughs> this is possible for every one of us if we engage with our Dharma practice sincerely. So rather than allowing this to frighten us, we can use it to energize our practice. While this temporary course body and consciousness are together, one is alive. And when they separate, this is called death. But that's not the end of the story because from a Buddhist point of view, uh, the mind is beginningless and endless. It goes on forever. Even Buddhists have an ongoing mind. So past and future lives are a given for most Indian, Tibetan, and Asian countries, Asian cultures. Some even say that ancient Gnostic Christian texts spoke of reincarnation. I don't know, I'll let you do that research. <laughs> But for many Westerners, I think this idea of reincarnation or rebirth is a challenging one. So we need to make more effort in that regard. And there's a section in chapter 9 about that. 
So what is it that goes from life to life? Well, an extremely subtle mental consciousness carrying all the karmic seeds that we accumulate throughout our lives. So if you still think that talking about death is morbid and depressing or talking about death will bring about death, some people have that idea. Actually, it's to the contrary. Um, because meditating on death can inspire us to deepen our refuge. And Venerable Children reminded us on a, well, we were watching a video from the 2015 uh, Tara retreat, and she reminded us that refuge and bodhicitta come to the same point. And I've been thinking about that. It's fascinating, really, especially Mahayana refuge. You know, not only do we have this fear or this caution of the situation we're in, and conviction or faith in, in our teachers, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, but also we have compassion for our fellow sentient beings. And so it's that compassion that leads us to want to actualize the resultant Buddha, Dharma, Sangha that we will one day become. And in the meantime, we're relying on the causal Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So thinking about death can help us to deepen our refuge and engage in spiritual practice with more consistency and more sincerity, instead of giving into our old habits and a hundred different distractions. It can inspire us to generate sincere motivations each day. Venerable uh, suggests that we begin each day with strong motivations not to harm, to benefit, to do all actions with bodhicitta, and to make sure that these, uh, these motivations are genuine. They're not just lip service, they're genuine and from the heart. They relate to our own experience, um, not mixed with attachment to the eight worldly concerns. So that's a challenge. It's easy to go on autopilot when you do the same thing every day. It can motivate us to keep our spiritual goals front and center to actually guide how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, how we spend our resources. You know, I, I'm, I was thinking I need to put a little... Um, sticky tab on my computer that says <laughs> death is certain, you know, to remind me how much time, what I'm doing on the internet every day. So if we do this, and as a result, we're more likely to create more virtuous actions each day. I remember at DFF, we had a sign in the, in the library that said, create causes now. And Venerable reminds us of that periodically, you know, be content to create the causes and the results will come. His Holiness said something similar in his recent teachings on the Heart Sutra. So meditating on death and reflecting on it, studying it, meditating on it is the best way to prepare for our own death, or one of the best ways, and it inspires us to live with more wisdom and more kindness, with more integrity and more intention. So it's very worthwhile. So I'll bet, I know all of you have heard teachings on the nine-point death meditation, and I'll bet people online have too. However, you know, and maybe many times, and perhaps you can even recite it by heart. <laughs> However, um, I, I, when I was preparing for tonight, I thought, oh, you know, just maybe mention that briefly and skip over to something more interesting. And I caught myself and I said, wait a minute, I don't have a realization of this. Who are you fooling? Who are you trying to fool? And so tonight I'd like to begin by um, going through the nine-point death meditation. Because I'm curious, has that meditation shaken you, shaken you, shaken you, <laughs> shaked you to the core of your being? 
such that you wake up every morning and you think, I don't want to waste a minute today. That's what we're aiming for. That's not pie in the sky. That is something that we can bring about through our honest reflection and meditation on this topic. His Holiness reminded us in his last teaching on the Heart Sutra just a few weeks ago that he said, receiving teachings is not counting how many times you've received them, but the purpose is to make a transformation in your mind. He said, I have received teachings on the stages of the past since my childhood. And he's, what, 85, 85. (laughs) I've also received experiential guided instruction on them, but without giving thought to them, they don't have much impact on you. But as time went by, I reflected on them again and again, and also compared the teachings with other treatises to complement these teachings. And that's why he is who he is and why... I am the way I am, or I don't know what's true for you, but uh, still no realizations, darn it. So how would we bring about this kind of transformation? This is a question I think about a lot. Um, If we only meditate on death and impermanence once in a while, it's not going to make much impact. You know, maybe a little bit of awareness, but not much impact. So what is it that we need to do? We could reflect and meditate on the nine-point death meditation every day for a period of time, like maybe a few weeks, a month, two months, um, or until it touches us, until we get a transformation. Actually, that's how they used to teach the Lam Rim in Tibet. A teacher would come, he'd give a teaching on some topic, he'd go away until the student had a realization. Then he'd come back and teach the next, next topic. We don't teach that way anymore. But we could practice that way if we were intentional. When we come back to the same meditation day after day, it opens us to new insights and really deepens the imprint on our mind stream. Especially if we try to hold that awareness throughout the day, not just doing the meditation and forgetting it, but really thinking about letting everything we encounter that day teach us about death and impermanence, for example. So that's one option. Another option would be to do a seven or a 10 day retreat just on death and impermanence, nothing else. You know, I often thought when I was doing Vipassana retreats, you know, we could do meditations, meditation retreats like this on every long room topic. I haven't done it yet, but I aspire to. <laughs> so we could take a period of time and just focus on death and impermanence. Every session, four sessions, five sessions a day, whatever you have time for. I remember hearing Zongzara Kensei Rinpoche talk about uh, a two-week retreat he had done on death and impermanence and how it had transformed his practice. That left an impression on my mind. Or if seven to 10 days, 14 days is too much, maybe once or twice a month we take a half a day or a full day just to do retreat on death and impermanence. We can set our lives up like that. Well, maybe not at the Abbey, but people at home could set up their lives like that. Actually, I think we could do it at the Abbey if we were, if we were intentional. The main point is to bring about a transformation in our mind, a noticeable shift in our awareness and attitudes so that we, the material shifts from being just a lot of intellectual information to something that really informs our heart, our actions, our thoughts. If we have this transformation concerning impermanence and death, then again, as we wake up each day, we would immediately think, this could be my last day. 
we wouldn't waste a minute. We'd be very, very motivated to practice. So let's talk through this meditation and think about some possibilities to bring it alive, no pun intended, but to bring it alive to our practice. Okay, so um, how this is set up, how this is structured is there are three main points. Death is definite, the time of death is uncertain, and only Dharma helps us at the time of death. And then each of those three main points has three subtopics, three subpoints. So um, I'll just uh, suggest some things that, that I've thought about over the years, and, and then I'll ask the community to uh, share what has been helpful in your practice on this topic. So under death is definite, the first subtopic is everyone who is born dies. I had a friend who used to say regularly, 100 years, all new people. The first time I heard it, it shocked me, like, oh, it's true. <laughs> it, it requires some thought in 100 years, all new people. Well, maybe even sooner. We don't know. There could be an even worse pandemic around the corner that takes out more of our population. So maybe in 30 years, 100 new, all new people. Here at the Abbey, 60, 70, 80 years, all new people. Maybe sooner, we don't know. No matter how rich, famous, beautiful, powerful, athletic, artistic, or religious, or ordinary a person may be, everyone dies. So I googled famous people who've died in 2020. Here's a short list because it was quite long. In 2020, we lost people like Sean Connery, Kobe Bryant, Kenny Rogers, Kirk Douglas, John Lewis, Charlie Pride, Pierre Cardin, John Prine, Dawn Wells, the woman who played Marianne on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Some of you remember her. Jerry Jeff Walker, Mr. Bojangles, does that ring a bell for some of you? Hugh Downs, John Le Carre, or Carre, spy novelist. Chuck Yeager, Bruce Bader Ginsburg. These are just a few of the famous people, famous people that died this year, but what about ordinary people? Uh, my mother died. Venerable Tarpas, one of Venerable Tarpas' nephews died. A friend of Venerable Dakey's died. Who else? People you know? Um, Venerable Kunga's uncle. Venerable Losung's aunt. Um, Venerable Nima's aunt. So it happens regularly, every day, doesn't it? So by thinking about the people that we know who have died, or paying attention to the news. Venerable Sumpton reads the obituaries on a regular basis. You know, by paying attention, these kinds of awarenesses can impact our mind. So everybody, no matter how rich, famous, powerful, athletic, beautiful, uh, religious, artistic, ordinary, people die. And no matter where we go, outer space, I did read that uh, aging slows down the farther we get out into space. So I guess that's one possibility. But it doesn't stop. Um, so outer space or maybe deep in the sea. I don't know if that has any impact. Uh, 
or up in the Himalayas. Oxygen chambers, does that extend your life? I don't know what the latest craze is. Uh, cryogenics, that doesn't help. <laughs> uh, so no matter where we go, um, we can't avoid death. The Buddha said, all conditioned things are impermanent. This is my final teaching. That was a clue. Okay, so that's the first point under death is certain. The second sub-point is when death arrives, our lifespan cannot be extended. So it's interesting to think from the very moment we're born, we're moving towards death. From the very moment. At the end of the day, we have one less day to live. That's a powerful thought. One less day to practice a dharma. One throwing karma has determined the maximum length of lifespan in this current body. And it can be shortened by accident or by running out of merit. But it can't be lengthened. Just like an hourglass empties grain by grain, bit by bit. Or just like the second hand on a clock or the digital beeps on a clock. Uh, never stop. They're unceasingly moving into the future. I remember uh, in the Vajrasattva retreat we did up at Whistler, or near Whistler, at Sea to Sky, uh, one session I just spent looking at the second hand on my watch, go around and around thinking, okay, I have one less second, I have one less minute, I have one less hour. It was quite a powerful meditation. Already in this session, uh, 35, 25 minutes have passed. We'll never have that time again. And for some of us, the majority of our life is already over. And that's not just the old folks. <laughs> you know, we don't know. We can't extend our lives, so how are we going to use the rest of our life? So that's the second point. Our lifespan cannot be extended. And then the third point is that we will die even if we have not made time to practice the Dharma. <clears throat> So think about it. We spend a third, a quarter to a third of our life sleeping. We also need time for working, shopping, cooking, bathing, cleaning, socializing, and entertainment, time to check the internet, etc. So how much time is left for the Dharma? How much time is left for the Dharma? The most important thing, the only thing we take with us when we die. Sadly, we will die even if we haven't gotten around to really practicing the Dharma. And think about it, the regret that we will feel in our mind. Um, one of the older nuns at Chenrezi Institute, just before she died, the last thing she said was, too much procrastination. And she was a good practitioner. <laughs> So would any of the community like to share any of the thoughts that have really helped you with this first set of three points under the first main point? Anything come to mind? Venerable Simke. I think there are two things that I've always found helpful. As the years have gone on since I've met the Dharma, let's see, it's been almost 20. It's, it's the generations. When I was first meeting the Dharma, there were still people in my circle whose grandparents, although old, were still alive. So that generation was still up at the top of the list. Then as a few years went by, as I've seen over the past few years, 
the parents of our half of our community, people my age, have all now getting up into the 80s and 90s. I, I see us as a generation coming up the list. And at this point, in my generation, we're now replacing the parents that have that are you know dying little by little, living to being quite old and, and spry in their late years. But now I'm really seeing that I'm in the generation now that's starting to take that top place. So I used to be safely down where I perceived myself in the third or fourth rung. Even years ago, I used to look at this kind of perspective. I have plenty of time. So mm -hmm. that's one of them that I think of. And then when my sister died two and a half years ago and I went into that retreat that I did, I saw myself on the back end of a mountain of my life. I mean, I really saw it visually as an image that I had spent most of my life climbing that mountain, having a great time, and that I'm really on the back end as best as I got, if karma will, in maybe 25 years, I don't know, maybe 30 years, but I'm on the back end of that slide. And that just kind of, I mean, it, it still has, I can find that place again in my mind because, because of that experience of being with her and seeing someone my age, my age gone, you know, 66, is that that showed me that you're already there. So I can find that image again, and that helps to bring some urgency to my practice. It freshens things up a bit. So those are the two things, just the that inevitable, that place where we're up at the top, and then this mountain image that I have. Thank you. Who else? Each day I try to think about um, all the things that are dying around me, because there are many things that are um, dying around me, so insects. Um, so I don't just think about humans, I think about all living beings, um, which keeps it... Um, I think seeing it that way, it just brings my mind to impermanence instead of bringing my mind to the ego place of, oh my gosh, I'm going to die, because that's not so helpful for the mind. So instead I approach it with, this is the normal way of how it is, that everything uh, that is conditioned dies, everything that comes about then comes apart. So to put it in that frame all the time with everything that I can uh, think about and look at and remind myself. Yeah, wonderful. And that's a way to extend that meditation from the cushion into our daily activity. Thank you. Uh, Venerable Kunga. At some point I came across a quote. It says that death is the most important moment in your life. So I really believe that. And, um, you know, the implication is that every moment of our life is a training a preparation for death. Mm. So it's like death is the natural outcome and it's really important. So, you know, use life <laughs> wisely because that's what it's for. And it doesn't have to be like scary or anything. It's just, you can take it seriously. Create virtue now. Venerable Lamsa. Um, for the second point that um, we can't extend our life, 
that moment by moment our life is running out. I find the image of um, riding on a racing horse to be very effective for my mind. Just this bolting horse that I'm on, that's just my life running out and it's just going, going, going. Um, and I think Venerable Kajo, she introduced the idea of being on a train that has no, that has no end, or a train that is going towards death and you can't get off. Um, and I find that image as well, like these um, graphic images to be helpful to kind of, I can imagine myself there in a different way and it makes the ideas more tangible. Great, thank you. Venmo Chuni and then Venmo Luzon. I think for the second point, sometimes I do when I'm doing breathing meditation is also at, with each breath, one breath closer to death, one breath closer to death. And to do that for a long session is quite um, potent. Mm -hmm. When I think about all the things that I have um, was previously engaged in as um, goals in my life, and when I think about the certainty of death, I just see them all as dead ends. And that is powerful for me. Just that, like, romantic relationships or building a um, a career or house or whatever. It's just, you know, and I don't have that much time left now. I thought about that a bit when I was younger, but now I don't really have that. If I were to start, if I were to have a piece of property or something and build another house, how long would I even be there, you know? And it's just, <laughs> all of it just seems so empty. Uh -huh. Empty of, um, of importance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the conclusion that um, we're led to by these first three points is that I need to practice the Dharma now, meaning I need to transform my mind now. That's, that's the conclusion. So let's look at the second point. The second main point is the time of death is uncertain. And so the first sub-point is that the lifespan of a human being in our world is indefinite. The duration of our life isn't fixed. People die at all ages. Some die very young. Some who are old and want to die linger for years and years. Young people die before their parents. Healthy people die before sick people. I remember um, my friend Llewellyn, who had been a vegetarian and only ate organic food for years and years, got cancer. It's like, how can this happen? <laughs> but it does. Many people went to bed last night and didn't wake up this morning. Many people who are alive today will not be alive tonight. One of us could die before the end of the week. It's a possibility. So we know intellectually that we're going to die, but we think, unconsciously, we think it won't be today, won't be now, won't be for a long time, right? But is that true? How do we know that for sure? It was interesting reading through some of those descriptions of famous people who have died in 2020 just to see how they died. And it was all different ways. Some people due to COVID, some people due to um, cancer, um, some people unexpectedly, one, one actress was shot uh, standing in front of her house. Um, you know, all sorts of ways that we die. Um, I remember the Melbourne 
uh, newspaper, don't remember what it was called, but the Melbourne newspaper did a front page spread one year of the lifestyle section. And it was how people died in the last year. It was fascinating to read how many people died of um, heart problems, lung problems, uh, circulatory system problems, uh, emotional problems, every kind of problem you could think of, every type of system of the body. And yeah, it was just a very good meditation on death. I wish I'd saved that paper. So we intellectually know that we're going to die, but unconsciously we have this habit of thinking, won't be today, won't be anytime soon. Um, but this is a type of grasping at permanence. This is a wrong consciousness, one that we need to counter. So it's very powerful to make a list of all the people that you've known in your lifetime who have died. And what's amazing is that it keeps growing. <laughs> so keep adding to it to, and, and think about um, how they died. Did they expect to die the day they died? Were they, were they expecting it? Sometimes there's a slow, gradual process a person could expect. On another hand, there are very quick deaths, unexpected deaths. Um, so that's the first point. The lifespan of a human being in our world is indefinite. The second point is that many circumstances lead to death and fewer lead to survival. So think of all the planning and effort and energy it takes to stay alive. How much planning and, and energy we have to put into shopping and eating and drinking and sleeping and making sure we have a house and eating the right vitamins and getting exercise and taking medicine, protecting ourselves from heat and cold and different diseases and injury takes a lot of energy. If you really add up how many minutes a day are spent on maintenance, <laughs> it's most of our day. Whereas dying requires very little effort. Just stop and you die. It takes one to three days to die of dehydration. You'd, we would die of dehydration much faster than starvation. So that's an interesting thing to ponder, all the effort and energy we put into survival. The third point is that our body is very fragile, and even the things that are meant to protect us and help us can cause our death. So think about how one little virus can cause death. Well, actually, it's not one little virus. It's probably a combination of little viruses, but anyway, it's one virus can cause death. Um, think about one bullet to any main part of our body. One small bullet, just a tiny bullet, little piece of metal, can end our life very quickly. One sharp blow, one blow, yeah, one sharp blow to the head, like with a fire extinguisher, for, for example, can kill a person instantly. One cut artery can cause us to quickly bleed to death. One bite of a poisonous spider or snake could bring death. I thought about that a lot when I lived in Australia because it was a reality. One small aneurysm bursting could kill us instantly. I think about how easily our body could be crushed in a car accident or um, a falling branch, a big falling branch outside when the wind is high. Um, think about how many systems in the body there are and how, how it's amazing that they don't go wrong more often. You know, that everything functions. It's quite amazing. It's quite a system we're driving around in. Okay, so what what other 
ideas and thoughts help you to meditate on this second set? Because this, the first set is probably easy, easier for us to understand and take on board. But understanding that and really, yeah, really taking it deeply to heart that the time of death is uncertain, that's more difficult, do you find? So what helps you in your meditation? Venerable Samten. Well, it is true. Whenever I have a chance, I read the obituaries. And I started doing this after the first retreat that I went to with Venerable Children in 1998. And at that point, you know, I just thought, well, it was old people who died. And in fact, I can go back further. And on my 26th birthday, my uncle told me that, you know, I was pretty much middle-aged. Happy birthday. And he, he said something else. And then he said, well, you know that people don't die of old age, right? And when I heard that, it was like, what, wait a minute, what, what do you mean? And it was like shocking, because I really thought, you know, it's just old people that die. Mm -hmm. So the thing about reading obituaries, it's, it's what you've mentioned, is that people die in all these different ways. But now the list of people who are younger than I am, that list is getting longer. And so when I read somebody who's died at age 49, it's like, well, wait a minute, what, what happened there? Mm -hmm. What's going on? I, I really want to know. And I want to know, you know, what was making their life important. But it really starts hitting at this very deep, innate belief that it's not going to happen now, for sure. It's going to happen much later. And this one's a really hard one to keep, you know, fresh in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so this daily reading of obituaries does help that. And it's still hard to believe. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Matt? Three things have come to mind. Um, the first one is when my dad died, I remember his parents came and they were looking in the hospital. And one thing that I really remember them saying is, it's not supposed to happen. He was supposed to die after me. And it was unfathomable for them. And that stuck with me for years now. It's like, um, that it's not, that's not how it's supposed to happen. <laughs> it happens however. Um, there's no way it's supposed to happen. Um, Another thing that I do personally, and, and whenever I'm driving around, I can't help but think, like, this could definitely be the last drive of my life. Um, I don't know why, but it just, the idea of dying in a car accident is very visceral to me. It's like, when I'm driving around, it's a good time for me to think, like, this last time I'm going to die, last time I'm going to be alive. Like, not, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, third thing. When I was uh, when I prepared for you know coming to the Abbey this last time, I I, I also I was balancing like wanting to see my grandparents because it's been like a couple of years now and you know now that COVID's around I can't really go anyway, and that was one of the things I kind of prepared my mind for. I was like, there's not really a certainty that they're even going to be alive on their side of this retreat, mm -hmm. and you know I think similarly about my my other grandparents as well who I'm not um, itching to see as much, but still. They're not going to be there forever. And like Dharma practice, I can't put that off forever either. Mm -hmm. When and I got in a car accident in India um, that I will always remember. Maybe think too much about it. That's why I'm terrified of driving. <laughs> I don't know. But I will always remember when the car hit the tractor I had no I hadn't learned anything about the death process yet, but really everything looked like a mirage and I had the thought, oh, I'm going to my next life. 
then、uh-huh. everything snapped back after that. So I always remember that, and that gives me a lot of faith in the death process that is that is described in the text. So when I have the cognizance, more so recently, I really try and rehearse that every day, because if you're familiar, it's going to be easier. And to try and keep the mind stable, like oh, let's go through all the steps, and then you know, see how how it, and just try and imagine that again and again and again, so that when it happens, it's gonna be okay.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how I work with my fear, anyway.、Um, sometimes、uh, for a period of time to keep it alive, I was working on a death journal. There's a book called Living and Dying with Confidence.、Uh, Living with、uh, Dying with Confidence is the actual book by Anjan Rinpoche. Venerable got us to download it for our library, and then there's the companion called Living and Dying with Confidence, and you, it has prompts for a whole year for you to journal about death.、Um, I got to day twenty three. I must confess. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to bring up the same thing about the accident, <laughs>、um, but also even to expand that. Any time I have been in a situation that was、um, unexpected and could result in death, I use that a lot to、um, rehearse where my mind is and what my mind is doing when I'm faced with. Unexpected things, because that gives me a <clears throat> good picture of how my mind is going to be when I'm dying.、Um, and so, again, like Venerable Doncho said, to you know, the familiarization of it is what、uh, allows us to keep、um, steady with our practice in our mind. Um, at the time of death, and also with anything that happens unexpectedly,、um, so I use that one a lot. Venerable,、mm-hmm. similar to Venerable Sompton's、um, practice of reading the obituaries, when I was in、um, Centralia, I would walk down to the cemetery、mm-hmm. and walk through and look at the different dates and add up how old the person was. And some infants, you know, people of all ages, and sometimes there's a stone next to them with the same last name, who was born way before them and died way later than them. So maybe a parent that died later than a child or something,、mm-hmm. and just people from from six months to a hundred years.、Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, listening to uh, a talk by,、um, I think she was a sociologist, Angelus Arian, Angelus Arian, anthropologist. Thank you. And、um, she talked about the Basque culture and how they have a tradition in the Basque culture that, let's say you were born on the fifth of January, and so every month on the fifth, you would do something new and unusual. To help you prepare for death, and so you would do just something out of the norm,、um, and、uh, so for a while I took this on as a, a practice on my birthday—not not every month, but on my birthday—I'd do something challenging and wild and crazy, and it was good for a while. And <laughs>、um, on my fortieth birthday,、um, shortly after that, I went on a three-month retreat, and then I stopped doing that. <laughs> okay. So the 
the conclusion from this set of, uh, sub, subset of points is that I must practice Dharma now because we don't know how much time we have left. So while we have this precious human rebirth, while we have these perfect conducive conditions, we must practice as much as we can, as sincerely as we can now. Then the, the last set of, uh, the last main point is that at the time of death, only the Dharma can help us or only what we've done to transform our mind can help us at the time of death. So again, three subsets, three subpoints. Money and possessions are no help at the time of death. So when it's time to die, none of us can take even an atom of material possessions that we have with us. All the things that we've worked so hard to acquire and the things that we cling to um, with attachment, they're no use to us at the time of death. And then someone else, else has to go through them and clean them out and figure out what to do with them. Yeah. Um, but any negative karma that we have accumulated and any habits that we've built up to acquire these things out of attachment or whatever the negativity may be, that goes with us. So that's a sobering thing to think about. Karma thinking about karma, how it works, how we accumulate it, how it um, becomes seeds on our mind stream, that can also uh, support our recollection of death and how nothing helps us at the time of death except the Dharma. It's also interesting to think about how the most powerful people in the world and the most lowly people in the world both leave this world only with their subtle mind and their karma. They leave the world in exactly the same way. Well, maybe the conditions are slightly different, but you know, if you strip away the conditions, we take our mind with us, that's it. We can't take anything else, our, our karma and our mind, our mind and our karma. So money and possessions are of no help at the time of death. It's really helpful when people preparing for the death start cleaning out the junk in their house so that their kids don't have to go through it. My mom did that. I was very grateful. Second point is that friends and family can't prevent our death, no matter how much they love us and respect us. So as the Buddha said, everything that comes together must separate. Even relationships, we probably don't think about that much when we enter into a relationship, but every relationship will end in one way or another. In fact, in every moment, things are changing. Every day we're different, right? Every day, every moment we experience a little death. That's another way to think about it. We're dying to who we were earlier. Now we're a new person. Um, and even though our parents or our children, our dear friends, coworkers, students may gather around our deathbed, not one of them can prevent our death. Even our teachers can't prevent our death. Even the Buddha was standing there. The Buddha cannot prevent our death. We go on alone. We come in alone, we leave alone. That's just how it is. And we spend a lot of time trying not to be alone in the middle. <laughs> um, so we, we go on alone. And in fact, people around our deathbed crying and lamenting can make it more difficult for us to make that transition peacefully. Um, so our friends and family can actually be a hindrance to a peaceful death if, we're, if we don't set things up well. And then the third point is that not even our body will be of benefit. Our body will betray us at the time of death. 
It's an interesting thing to think about. We so strongly identify with this body, this gender, this appearance. And we've all obsessed over our body, bodies, you know, pampering it, making sure we're dressed right to avoid ever feeling cold or hot, too hot, too cold. We spend hours at the gym or eating the right foods and vitamins, obsessing over the slightest little pain or illness. But this body will betray us. At some point, it will stop functioning. We can count on that. In some manner, it will stop functioning. Um, we can see our body kind of like a rental car. You know, we're just driving it for a short time. Our mind is in this body for a short time. Or we can see it as an Airbnb that we're temporarily using. You know, we're just here for a short time. A hundred years in the long spectrum of things is a very short time. So, of course, we want to keep our body healthy and functional, but with an awareness that we won't, we won't be here that long. <laughs> Um, and we won't obsess with it so much, so that we have a healthier relationship, a more appropriate or more realistic relationship with our body. You know, again, we want to keep our bodies healthy because they're a, the the necessary support for our consciousness. But you know, without going to the extremes. Okay. So, anyone like to share about these last points? Any anything that's really brought this uh, strongly to your mind? in your practice? Actually, one thing that's not mentioned in these points is that we leave all these fabricated identities behind. And of course, these three things are our possessions, our body, and our friends and family. We, we create identities around that also. But we have identities about like what I've done, or what I believe, or what country I'm from, and all this stuff. And, and it, it's um, superficial and it's going to be gone. Yeah, good point. Venerable often talks about um, something about these bubbles. These personalities are like bubbles, karmic bubbles. Yeah, that yeah can pop at any moment. We don't take any of that with us. If you really think about it, as the consciousnesses, the gross consciousnesses start dissolving at the time of death, um, what's left is just a very subtle mental consciousness, so none of that personality goes with us. The habits, the tendencies do, but not the not the actual personality. Anything else on these? Venerable Jigme. If I can keep my mind focused on impermanence, then um, I don't uh, have the expectation that my body's going to function in a certain way. It's changing continually and I'm not shocked when it's not doing what I would like it to do. And so then I spend less time fussing about it and being so focused on it and, you know, being reactive to it and maybe being angry at it or, you know, scared about it or whatever. Instead, I just, well, of course, every day, if you look closely, every day it feels different. So why would I expect anything different? Some days it functions a little better and some days a little worse. And that's going to happen every day until I die. And so nothing to get all whipped up about. Um, yeah, Nicole. Especially with regards to the, the first and third point, I've been practicing paying attention to those moments where I'm, 
you know, unhappy about how cold the shower is or something like that and kind of pointing out to myself that this won't matter in 10 minutes. It certainly won't matter at the time of death and kind of looking back and saying, okay, that thing I was, you know, so obsessed about, you know, two years ago doesn't matter now. Mm -hmm. It certainly isn't going to matter at the time of death. And so kind of working forwards and backwards that way to, to shift that perspective to say none of these things is are going to matter at death. Great awareness. Thank you. I honestly sometimes think which of the members of our community are going to die first. Mm. And how will that be for, you know, one of us, knowing that we live so close together 24-7 at the time of death, you know, my as I as I get more aware of that that that's going to happen sooner than later, is that I continually make prayers, may I have the wherewithal to practice, and may whoever of us is the first to go, and following each other, may we be able to be there for each other, may we be able to, may all of us have enough wherewithal with our practice. You know, I mean, I just make that aspiration that we're, we're doing the work, but when the time is to, for one of us, the first to, to pass in the community, it's going to be a die-alone situation, no matter whether we're around them, doing the pujas, doing their practices, venerable here, not here, whatever, is that this whole idea that this sangha community, as close as we are, also has to separate. You know, it's just mm -hmm. this, this thing that's getting in my head a lot more than it used to. Mm -hmm. One of the um, clearest things I took away from my mother's death was the conviction that nothing, there is nothing but dharma at the time of death that will help. And and I, I don't even know how to describe the vividness of that except to see that that body stopped and that body wasn't my mother. And uh, none of this stuff was my mother. <laughs> None of this stuff was anything, right? There was absolutely nothing. And and from my side, you know, as the daughter, nothing was going to help at, at that at time of her death, but the Dharma either. But somehow that that experience also gave me a lot of um, confidence in the Dharma already in my own mind, in my appreciation for it. And, uh, and I do draw on that as an um, incentive or as a motivation to keep cultivating it because mine will not be as, uh, mine will be a lot harder than hers. For my, my death for myself will be a lot harder than my mother's death, right? <laughs> so, you know, to, to sh keep shoring up that conviction and, and the Dharma present to be able to be with it. Um, question and a few comments. Um, so someone is asking, when death comes and if we still have a sober mind that's not intoxicated with painkillers, what should we meditate on? At the time of death. Oh, there are a number of things. Uh, I think mainly what you're familiar with. Um, we're advised to call refuge to mind. We're advised to meditate on bodhicitta. Um, you know, really thinking about, I'm not the only one who's gone through this. May I, may I experience this for the benefit of all sentient beings? If a person was very familiar, they could meditate on emptiness. They could be going through the eight disillusions at the time of death, really preparing for seeing those visions. Um, we haven't talked about the eight disillusions. I wasn't sure how long this would take. Maybe we have some time to talk about those. Um, 
So there are many things that anything virtuous will do. <laughs> um, and so familiarizing ourselves with the image of a deity like Buddha Shakyamuni, well, he's not a, okay, visualizing, becoming familiar with a visualization like Buddha Shakyamuni or one of the deities that we practice like Green Tara or Chenrezig or whoever, uh, whichever practices closest to your heart, then there is a good chance that that image, that visualization can come to mind easily at the time of death. Basically, it comes down to whatever we're doing now and familiarizing with, that's going to be probably what's going to come to mind at the time of death. So hopefully it's virtue. And we can be intentional about uh, familiarizing with things so that we can bring them to mind at the time of death. And in fact, uh, anyone who has a highest yoga tantra um, initiation practices going through these eight disillusions at least six times each day, three times in the morning, three times at night, so that we do familiarize ourselves with some of these visions that come up that Venerable and His Holiness describe later in the book. Um, so that, that could be something that a person uh, focuses on too. And someone comments that, I think of my grandmother's life as a bell curve. Marriage, house, career, children. Then children grow up, retire, husband dies, goes to live in a nursing home. Everything that was obtained was lost. Yeah. Um, and then someone else says, when, I, when heading to the operating theater last year, everything was foreign to me with no one at my side. I came to realize deeply at that point of death, um, only the Dhamma would be with me, not my friends or family. Great awareness. Yeah, the Buddha is our best friend. The Dharma is our best friend um, because the Buddhas and the Dharma are always with us. <laughs> Friends, well, we don't know where they'll be. <laughs> okay, so the conclusion from that last set of three is that I must practice the Dharma purely um, while we have this precious human rebirth and the conducive conditions. So in other words, not tainted by the eight worldly concerns so that we get the, the, the greatest um, benefit from our, our Dharma practice. In Venerable's book, Guided Buddhist Meditations, there's a meditation on imagining our death that I have found really helpful. It's surprising how powerful it is for me, given that it's quite simple and straightforward. She poses some important questions for us to consider. So in case you don't have that book, I'll just read through them. And then maybe you can... Um, look this up later and write them down or buy the book. Given that I will die one day, what is important in my life? What do I feel good about having done? And what do I regret? What do I want to do and avoid doing while I'm still alive? What can I do to prepare for death? And what are my priorities in life? So again, very straightforward questions, but I have used them myself and sent them to friends and sent them to my mother shortly before her death to think about. Very powerful to really reflect what's most important. So um, we have a little bit of time left. Um, I appreciate the way His Holiness and Venerable Chodron talk about the death process in Chapter 9, on page 219. It's, it's quite streamlined and straightforward. 
this, the explanation of the death process, the eight disillusions can be very elaborate, but here's, they've just taken the essence. So let me just read through this, um, not quickly, but not too slowly either. So she says, or they say, Highest Yoga Tantra explains the death process in great detail. Eight steps occur as the body gradually loses its ability to support coarse levels of consciousness and as the mind becomes increasingly more subtle. Until the subtlest mind, the fundamental innate clear light mind dawns. That is the actual moment of death. In the next moment, the mind leaves the body and enters the bardo, and at that time, the person is dead. So as each element dissolves, that is, as it loses its ability to support consciousness, our aggregates weaken, and we have an inner experience to the mind. So these are the eight uh, dissolutions. The first one is, when the earth element dissolves into the water element, the body becomes thinner, the form aggregate, the body weakens, and the person has an inner shimmering appearance like a mirage. It's also a time when you lose your ability to see. When the water element dissolves into the fire element, the mouth becomes dry and the skin puckers. The feeling aggregate loses the ability to experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. And the person has an inner appearance of smoke. The ear consciousness ceases at that time, even the very subtle internal whirr sound in the ear ceases at that time. The third disillusion is when the fire element dissolves into the wind element, the heat in the body diminishes. Sometimes the heat leaves beginning with the feet and going upwards, other times from the head down. The aggregate of discrimination subsides, meaning we can't differentiate who's around us. We can't differentiate near people, people we are close to or strangers. And the inner appearance is of sparks of light, like fireflies. When the wind element, the fourth stage, the wind element dissolves into space or consciousness, the external breath stops. So that's when doctors pronounce the person dead. But from a Buddhist point of view, the consciousness, the more, more subtle levels of consciousness are, have not yet left the body. The aggregate of the miscellaneous factors loses power and there is an appearance of a small, dim candle flame about to go out. At this point, breathing has stopped completely, the body grows cold, and the coarse consciousnesses have been absorbed. At that stage also, you have no ability to taste or sense tactile sensations, rough and smooth. Then, the fifth through seventh stages of the dissolutions. Now the coarser winds, the inner energies that serve as the mount of consciousness, begin to dissolve. As with the previous stages of dissolution, the time it takes to pass through the next three phases varies with the person, the cause of death, and the person's spiritual training. These three phases are inner appearances to the mind, named 
the vivid white appearance, which resembles a bright light of the full moon, the red increase appearance, like the orange-red color of the sky at sunset, and the black near attainment of complete darkness. Then the eighth stage is that now the subtlest mind, the fundamental innate clear light mind manifests. This is the actual moment of death. It's a moment. It's a moment of mind. This is the actual moment of death. Although the subtlest wind mind is still present in the body and a well-trained practitioner will meditate on emptiness. There is no rigor mortis, and there may be a slight sense of heat if we hold our hand just above the person's heart chakra at the center of their chest. During this time, the relationship between the body and the mind has not been severed, and the body does not decay. So it's better to avoid touching or moving the body at this time if possible. So anyone interested in learning more about that, those eight disillusions, His Holiness has a beautiful book called Advice for Dying and Living a Better Life. And he goes into a little more detail about that. There's also a nice section in this chapter called Helping Ourselves and Others at the Time of Death. And so uh, we're running out of time, so I'll, I'll leave that for you to review on your own. But I would like to recommend a beautiful article that I found on the Internet called How to Talk About Death. Um, It's on the website of the Amitabha Hospice Service in Auckland, New Zealand. And there are specific points about how to have that difficult conversation with someone you may be supporting at the time of death. Um, Yeah, so you might want to look into that if if you're a caretaker uh, for someone who is uh, close to death. Okay, so... um, I hope this has been helpful, and it's certainly been helpful for me to go through this again and to make a stronger commitment to bring about some level of deeper conviction. You know, each year as we go through the Lam Rim, each time we come around to the topic, it will create a stronger imprint on our mind, so we can trust that as well. But um, I think, you know, there are these four thoughts that turn the mind. Uh, thinking about preciousness of our human rebirth, death and impermanence, karma, and suffering of cyclic existence. These are four practices, along with bodhicitta and emptiness, that um, we really need to take care to cultivate so that we do develop a level of conviction that shows itself in our behavior and our the ways we, we think and act in the world. Okay, so with that, we'll... Uh, Rejoice that we had this time together to reflect on death and impermanence. Thank you, Venerable Chodron and His Holiness Dalai Lama for this beautiful chapter. Um, Yeah, every word, every line is potent. And we can dedicate.